0: We've been talking this Advent season about longings. We've been connecting our lives to the longings of the Old Testament, Old Covenant people of God as they looked forward to a Messiah. And they hoped that he would come and that he would do certain things for them, that he would bring them justice and freedom and peace and this whole litany of things that we've been talking about for a month now. And we've been ourselves connecting with, hey, I've got some of those same longings. And whether I'm looking back at Jesus who came or I'm still looking forward for Jesus to come again, I have longings, I have desires, I'm hoping That this day that the Bible talks about is a reality, that he comes, he makes everything right, he makes all things new. And uh, all throughout this series, though I have not shared this with you yet, I have had a mental image. So maybe close your eyes if this would help you. If you're the kind of person you can't see anything except what you're seeing, so you need to see the inside of your eyelids, then do that for a moment. But the image I've had is standing before a lake. A lake. And on the other side of that lake is this rugged, just gorgeous range of mountains and maybe a sunrise or a sunset beyond that. I picture Maroon Lake in Aspen. I don't know why. The the maroon bells, that's what I picture, okay? But here's the thing. As you're standing in front of that lake and there's the range of mountains and there's the sunrise or sunset and it's all just gorgeous and overwhelming and you feel the sense of awe At the color and the majesty and the beauty and just the raw power of everything that you're looking at, you can only see the reflection in the water. Okay, so the, the color of the water distorts a little bit the image that is here but you can't see. And maybe the wind is blowing a little bit. So there's, there are ripples on top of the water and that's breaking up the image and scattering the light. And so you see the reflection of these mountains and the suns and the colors are still beautiful. And you, you get a sense of, this is incredible what I'm looking at. This is gorgeous what I'm looking at. Oh, I wish I could see the reality and not just the reflection of it. I think so many of our longings are like that image. Where we see a reflection, only an imperfect reflection of a beautiful reality. So stick with me for just a moment with this analogy, with this image. Imagine you said, I want this so badly, but I can only see the reflection. And so you just go after the reflection and you just plunge into the water to get that beauty and that power and just let it encompass you. And you realize in going after the reflection, I have only gotten wet and now I'm cold. You know, and the reflection is scattered all the much further because I've jumped into it. But I think that does picture so much of our lives where we see a reflection of justice, a reflection of freedom, a reflection of the identity that we want, the reflection of peace, the reflection of contentment, and we go jump right in it. And maybe we experience some brief or partial version of satisfaction. That longing has been met because I plunge right into it, but very quickly we realize satisfaction is more elusive than I realized. And I'm actually more disappointed for having gone after it this particular way because by going after the reflection rather than the reality, we actually end up with neither. So I want to wrap up this Advent series that we've been doing. And I know we're post-Advent, we're in Christmas tide technically. But I want to wrap up this series on longings here at the end of the year by just talking to you about the importance of leading our longings, our desires, rather than letting our longings and desires lead us. It's this mantra of culture, follow your heart. You know, every Disney movie, every young princess rebels against her parents because they're morons. And at the end, every, every set of parents is confessing to their child, of course, you were right. Of course, we were wrong. We're such idiots. What do we know about the world? And she followed her heart. And it always turns out so beautifully well after a few minor incidents. Well, that's, that's not how life goes. And if we follow the, the Disney storyline instead of the gospel storyline, we end up with a lot of disappointment, a lot more brokenness and pain and a curse. So here are your three points this morning. You don't have notes. So if you're looking for those online, um, it was a busy week with the holidays and all that. So you can just jot down a couple key things. So we're going to talk this morning about letting God define, letting God direct, and letting God delight our longings. So going back to the very beginning of the Bible, in the very first pages of Genesis, God not only assumes that you have longings and desires, he's actually the author of them. So God is not suddenly surprised in the garden to find this man and woman and be like, wow, it just never crossed my mind that you would have these desires for things. God is actually the creator. He's the author of those desires. You go back to the early pages of Genesis, and you find that God actually made humankind with a massive capacity for joy and delight. And he places them in a garden that was specially designed for them to satisfy their longings. First and foremost, the longing to have relationship with God as he walked there amongst the plants and the animals and he fellowship with them. The greatest longing of their heart is met in a personal relationship with God. But God is not stingy like, hey, you can have me but nothing else because God, you know, God's a jealous God, but he realizes like, if you have me, then in a proper way you can enjoy all of my good and gracious gifts. So I'm going to fill the garden with things that satisfy other appetites that I've given to you. I designed your taste. I've designed your hearing so that certain sounds delight your soul. Okay? So right after God formed them, this is Genesis 2.9. So God forms Adam from the dust of the ground. It says he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living being. And then we read this right on the heels of that. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And right at the beginning of the Bible story, we understand God is not just a pragmatic God. He's not just this utilitarian God, like, okay, I'll give you what you need. God is a God of satisfaction and delight. You know, I have some friends now and a family member in another state. They've gotten COVID. They lost their sense of taste. And they're like, you know, eating is miserable when all you have is the texture of something and there's literally no taste to differentiate and to enjoy it's just a thing that you do to live but God designed you with smell and taste buds so that there's a delight not just a pragmatism to survival And God, when he places these things in there that says, this is going to be beautiful to your eyes, this is going to be great to your taste, it's going to satisfy the needs of your body, but in a way that's delightful, he goes on to say, you can eat anything you want, like look around you, look at the diversity and the beauty of the flora and fauna of this place that I've put you, you can have any of it except the fruit of that one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he says, the fruit of that one tree is off limits. And this is our first point. Let God direct your longings. Okay, as he's setting the stage for you and putting all these things in front of you and saying, here are a ton of different things that can satisfy the longings and the desires of your heart. This first point is just simply, God is God. He's the maker. And so he gets to say, go after this, not This. This is good for you. This is bad for you. Or if you desire these things which are good for you, make sure that you don't desire them ultimately so that they become an idol or a god to you. And what I want you to understand with this first point is God isn't looking to artificially, kind of arbitrarily interfere with your enjoyment of life. And I think some people read the Bible that way. Man, look at all these rules. It's just like, don't eat this, don't do that, can't celebrate that. And it just seems like, man, he's just. What's he doing? But from the very beginning of the story, we understand what God is actually intending to do is he's intending to maximize your enjoyment of creation by directing you towards certain things and directing you away from others. You know, when we were first teaching each of our three kids to ski, you get them up to the top of a mountain. Most of you know this living in Colorado. There are usually many different ways down that mountain. You know, you could take a green trail, which is the easiest. You can take the blue, which is kind of the intermediate. Or you can just go bomb and straight down the mountain, which is probably some kind of black or double black diamond. And as much as some of our kids were just like, boom, let's just do this. You know in your wisdom, hey, let's, let's do the green first. Okay, no, I want to do this. But by directing your kids' appetites and longings for adventure... They can actually pick up a skill, and in the long run, their delight of skiing is not just like, hey, I don't, no, I don't want to go. I remember that time, you know, and if you know Mary Jane, when you're coming down Mary Jane and it's a blue-black, and that's the only way back to your car, um, each of our kids has had a traumatic experience around getting down that very long, like pretty steep run. You don't want to start there. So what God is doing from the beginning of the story by directing his kids, as it were, into certain things and away from certain other things, is he's actually saying, my heart is that I would maximize your delight and your enjoyment of all of it. First and foremost, me, but then everything else. Okay, and by the way, this would be an interesting and helpful perspective to take back to your Bible reading in this new year. Maybe some of you start a new program. That in so many ways, what God is doing in his word is he's directing your longings. You know, the Ten Commandments, something as simple and basic and well-known as that, when God says, thou shalt not, he's understanding you have certain impulses that need to be curbed. You may have an impulse to worship something else, to make something or someone else ultimate in your life, which is going to be a dead end to your joy. So don't do that. Why? Because I'm selfish and proud? No, because I want you to have delight in the most delightful object, which is Yahweh himself. When he says, don't lie, cheat, and steal, don't covet, don't kill, he's understanding at certain times, some of you will have impulses, you'll have longings to do all of these things. And when you do all of these things, or some of these things, you bring a curse on yourself. You bring punishment. So God's saying, like, hey, tell the truth. It's like, that's for your delight, ultimately, so you're going through the Bible and you see, okay, there are these narrative stories that I'm reading that kind of show us examples of good and bad outcomes when people follow certain longings. You come to the poetry of Scripture, the Psalms in particular, you realize this is giving me a sacred language for expressing my desire. Lord, I long for these things. I despise these things. I'm afraid of these things. I doubt these things. I need these things. And the prophets show us who and what we ought to be longing for. So here's a question for you. I'm going to pause just for a moment for you to think about this. What are some of your deepest and most persistent longings? You know, just in the quietness of your own mind, when you find yourself like, I desire this, or you may even feel like, I need this. I need this. I need this thing. I need this relationship. I need this, maybe it's an intangible, like peace or contentment in my life. What, what are some of those things? Maybe the first two or three that you would think this is a deep and persistent longing. I keep coming back to it over and over again. And then the follow-up question to that is, is God directing you to desire these things? Or where else might those desires be coming from? I feel like I need this. Okay, so as I read Scripture about the character of God and the will of God and the purposes of God for my life, does this correspond to something that God is directing me to, or where else is it coming from? So a couple examples. Over the past few weeks, we've talked about your longings for significance, identity, peace, love, freedom, different things like that. Those correspond to things that God is teaching you to pursue. We also talked about, on the other hand, something like longing for autonomy, which is one of the biggest and most pervasive longings of progressive culture is autonomy. In other words, literally self-law, self-rule. Nobody tells me what to do. I am a rule unto myself. I will do me, right? And we find in scripture that that self-law, that self-direction actually doesn't correspond with something that God would be directing you into, Okay. Actually, let's turn our attention back to this for a moment. So in Genesis 3, as we're talking about autonomy, God's arch nemesis, Satan, shows up in chapter 3, shows up in the garden, disguised as a serpent, and he basically says to Eve, Look, Eve, you and I both know what you want here. You want the thing that God told you not to want. It's an incredible thing, right? It's, it's not even like it's 50-50, You can eat this half. You can't have this other half. It's literally like you can have anything but the one thing. And what does she want? The one thing. And Satan's like talking in her ear and saying, the reason that God doesn't want you to have that is because when you have that, you'll be wise like he is. And he doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be wise. He doesn't want you to know what he knows and to experience what he experiences. And then we read these tragic words in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And if you know this story, immediately Adam and Eve are ashamed. They're blaming each other. They're blaming the serpent, they're blaming God, there's conflict, they get sideways with each other and eventually there's a curse where God says, remember I told you you would die if you did this? Well, you will. And today that process starts because you will be kicked out of the garden and separated from my life-giving presence. Okay, so this is the first point again, let God direct your longings. Now, as you're doing that, Point two, let God define those longings that you're now pursuing, okay? So at this point, I'm I'm assuming that you're letting God direct. And when he says, like, those longings are not healthy at all, like autonomy, so don't go after that. You're like, okay, so I'm going after freedom, not autonomy. I'm going after community, not isolation. I'm going after meaning and purpose instead of nihilism, okay? So I'm letting God direct, Now step two, it's important to lay these things before God and say, Lord, how do you define, how do you outline, how do you limit the things that I'm going after? For example, all throughout Scripture, the people of God were worshipers. They had faith. They had service. Great, right? Worship, faith, service, awesome. Well, not so fast because if you know the stories of the Old Testament, very often, they refuse to let God define faith, to define worship, to define who or what they serve. And so, all of their energy that should be given in enjoying God is given in serving something else, like the Baals or Asherah, like poles of things that they set up and worship this God that they had crafted with their own hands. And it was a dead end, okay? So, they've got to let God define stuff like faith and worship and service. I want to give you two examples this morning that are current for our culture. Let's first of all take the big category of love. Okay, is the longing for love good or bad? The longing for love is good. It's good. You you were made in God's image. The Bible says God is love. So you were made for community. You were made for relationships. You were made to be affirmed. Okay, so all, all good so far. But then our culture comes along and says, and you've all heard this, love is love. Love is love. And of course, what culture means by that is no one can tell you who to love or how to love them. Because love is love is love is love. Any kind of love is the same as any other kind of love. You should do what you want to do you should be true to yourself, be true to your feelings, be true to your urges, and then just go sleep with whoever you wanna sleep with because in our culture, which is so progressive, sex equals love, right? No one's shocked by that, right? You, you, You know that that's how our culture treats love. It basically reduces down to a physical relationship with someone. All right, here's what I mean by letting God direct and define our longings. And at the risk of being a little awkward for someone, like probably someone at home, don't turn this off. Because here's the thing. When I'm talking about sexual intimacy and sexual pleasure, you send your kids off to school and they're hearing a narrative around sexuality all the time. You know, And then Christians don't talk about certain things. You may have noticed like in the church, just like, yeah, hey, we're, you know, we don't, we don't talk about that. And the the impression that we give our kids is that something is like dirty, it's taboo, it's off limits. You know, we don't, we don't talk about that. And so we've got a culture over here that's talking, 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 talking constantly about sexual intimacy and sexual pleasure. And, and we don't talk about it. So what do you think every generation just grows up believing in their minds about this particular longing or desire? They end up believing what the world is indoctrinating them to think. And there's this myth out there that the Bible represses sexual longing and is like, cut it out with the dirty thoughts already. But have you actually read the Bible? I mean, again, at the risk of being awkward, the second chapter of the Bible, the story starts with a a naked husband and wife walking around in a garden together the entire book of Song of Solomon. I mean, if you understand what you're reading, and hopefully some of you don't, so you're not scarred by it at a certain age, but it's fairly erotic. If this morning, if I explain to you what the words in Hebrews 13, 4 actually say in the Greek language about marital relations, some parents who are watching at home with their kids would be calling for my job. Like, really, you're going to use that word in church? Yeah, because the Well, no, but the Bible does. I pause and think, if you believe that God is the creator of everything, including the creator and the author of every good form of appetite and longing and desire, then he's the inventor of sexuality. He designed you for intimacy. He designed you for pleasure But here's the thing. With the second point where I'm saying God directs and he defines our longings, that means God in giving us a beautiful gift is the one who is allowed to say, and here is the context to enjoy this gift without guilt, without shame, without reproach, without feeling dirty. And he gives us this amazing gift of marriage. Because he's saying, here's an amazing longing that I've given you. I've even designed it to be enjoyable. But here's how you safely experience that in a holy and shameless way. And by the way, at the very same time, God shows us that love is far more than just a sexual thing. You come to 1 Corinthians 13, you talk about a definition of love. And our culture is like, no, it's just, it's just this. And, and God's like, no, love is also Patient and kind and generous, and it's, it doesn't just seek its own way, and it doesn't rush into things of just assuming the worst about people. And he goes through this whole list of attributes that are that are way beyond how our culture defines love. So he gives us the greatest definition of love. He gives us the greatest example of love in the self sacrifice of Jesus. And he says, "No greater love has anyone than this, that a man Jesus." Lay down his life for his friends. So who in your life, friends, gets to define love? Do you trust culture to define love for you and your kids? Do you trust the wanderings of your own heart to define love? Or do you trust God to define? Here's a longing. It's good. Let me direct it. Let me define. Let me me give color and context for how this longing can be enjoyed, okay? One more example is who gets to define justice? When we talk a lot about justice, do, do you get to define justice? Does your peer group get to define justice? Does your political party or platform get to define justice? Does the majority culture get to define justice? Does the... Oppressed culture, is that who we want defining justice? Or do we want God to define justice? You may understand that a lot of times when our culture talks about justice, what they're demanding is actually not just by God's standards at all. I mean, to punish an entire group of people for the actions of one person is itself a new injustice, you know, to, to steal from someone, literally steal from them, take from them to like, quote unquote, level the playing field is actually, according to God's law, another act of injustice. You know, simply turning on someone, supporting someone or, or, or oppressing someone on the basis of their skin color or their socioeconomic status or their relative power level is itself injustice. To simply treat isolated instances of injustice and leave a system intact that sponsors each of those individual acts is itself injustice, okay? So my point is, as followers of Jesus, we ought to be saying, God, you define justice in your word. You, you are the standard of what's right and wrong, what's just and unjust. You say in Scripture over and over again that righteousness and justice is the foundation of your throne, meaning everything emanating from you and from your sovereign rule is righteous and just. Now, if you don't know, evangelicalism right now is fighting over the meaning of justice. In terms like social justice and critical race theory and intersectionality have become a battleground that are unfortunately, and I'm going to stereotype and I'm gonna paint with a broad brush, but we're breaking up into categories of like minorities and liberals versus the majority white culture and conservatives. And they're just arguing past each other about these terms. And I wanna just come back to, I wanna come back to this. Whether you're talking about freedom or love or justice or peace or contentment or identity or any other thing that you could long for, I have another picture in my mind. If you have a piece of paper, you might wanna draw it. I draw a big circle in my mind. This circle, is God's definition of that thing. And maybe take one of your longings that you thought of. Maybe it is a longing for love. So this circle is God's definition of love, okay? Now what each of us does in our brokenness is we come to God's circle. And I'm not saying that we do this deliberately. I'm saying we do it by default. We come to God's circle. Okay, that's how you define love. And we start saying, well, I I don't agree with that part of that. I, I agree with that. And I agree with that. I like that. I like that. I don't like that. That's pretty outdated. Oh, that's cool. I like that part. Um, And then we're also outside the circle, drawing our own circles and saying, this wasn't a part of God's definition, but this is part of my definition of justice or my definition of love. And if you were to look at a Venn diagram, we're like, I don't agree with all of God's definition. I agree with some of it. And I've created some of my own. And this is now what love is. And whether we're talking about justice and we can talk about terms in the church and be thoughtful about what is intersectionality, what is social justice. Because if it corresponds to something that God says under a different label, then it's, then it's righteous, then it's just. If it doesn't correspond, it doesn't matter how popular something is in our culture. It isn't safe, it isn't wise, it isn't healthy to draw our lines anywhere differently than where God draws his lines. That's what I mean when I say, let God define for you a healthy version of each of your longings. Now, if at this point, if you're picturing a well-ordered, obedient, and miserable life, because God has defined everything, he's directed you away from like all the fun stuff, right? And again, that's that's... The reason I talked about sexuality a little bit this morning is because I I want my own kids growing up understanding God's not like anti-fun. He's pro, if I could put it this way, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, he's pro-fun without shame. He wants you to have maximum delight, and this is my final point. Let God delight your longings. So as he's directing your longings and saying, Adam and Eve, and then you can fill in your name, this, not this, And now as we talk about this, let me define for you what a healthy, safe, fulfilling version of these longings looks like. Let me define that. This important third point is let God delight your longings. Because hear me out. If you have a legitimate longing, whatever it is, God has already created something to satisfy that longing legitimately. Let me say that again. If you have any Legitimate longing, God has already defined and created something to satisfy that longing legitimately. Okay, so your appetite, again, we we talked about taste buds. He's already given you something to satisfy a good and healthy longing. That's how he can turn around and say, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How does that make any sense to us? Why does that register? Because we know what tastes good and what doesn't. And we're like, I need, to, I need a taste. I need to experience God and see that he is good for myself. This again is Genesis 2.9, that before the first humans had ever been created, God is already setting the stage for them saying, you got visual desires, you have physical appetites, then I'm gonna populate your environment with a plethora of good things that will satisfy you because I love you. And perhaps the oldest lie in the world is the lie that God probably doesn't want you to be happy. He wants to withhold everything enjoyable. You know, and, and, and true head over heels delight lies just on the other side of God's prohibitions. And I would guess that some of you grew up thinking that, especially if you had a a religious background of like, I mean, the rules are just designed to keep me from experiencing true happiness. You know, rebellion, that's where true happiness will be found. And we think, I'd be happy if, I'd be happy if I had the one thing that God isn't giving me right now. I'd be happy if I looked at that material. I'd be happy if I got a spouse. I'd be happy if I had children. I'd be happy if I had more vacation time. I'd be happy if, and we make this whole list of things. And we're, we're following the playbook of James 1:14 and 15, where James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He's saying, you, you want to know where sin comes from? It's when you just, in your heart, you're like, I desire this. I long for this. I need this. God says, no, but oh, I, I, I have to. I desire it so much. Or listen to the warning of 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires or longings. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And if it sounds like the Bible is saying here, the problem is that you have desires. The problem is you have longings. Now, what what these texts are actually saying is the problem is not that you have longings and desires. The problem is that you take those longings and desires, you turn your back on God and you're like, there's something here in this world that is gonna satisfy me beyond my wildest dreams and God can wait while I do this thing. And by the way, do you notice the, the parallel between 1 John 2? The only thing the world has to offer is you have insatiable, unsatisfied desires, flesh, the eyes, pride, It's the same storyline as Genesis chapter 3, where Eve sees it, her flesh desires it, eyes, desire, pride, this will make me like God. It's the same exact three things. So the problem is not that we have desires and longings. The problem is what we do with them. We want love so badly, we turn our back on God, and we're like, This guy with a completely different worldview who doesn't believe in God, he seems really nice. He gives me attention. And we satisfy a desire for affirmation and acceptance in a way that it's it's just not going to work. If God is at the center of your life. Or we want an identity, we want acceptance so badly we sell ourselves out to the first group that gives us acceptance and says, we think you're terrific just the way you are. We want peace so badly, we take it at the expense of compromise. Okay, so what's the alternative? Last verse in closing, Psalm 37, 4. And the Bible actually says the alternative to temporary, superficial satisfaction of your longings and desires is not killing your desires. It is finding the fulfillment, the ultimate, deep, eternal Fulfillment in God. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So my paraphrase is, following Jesus doesn't spell the death of satisfaction. It spells the birth of a deep and lasting satisfaction with no regrets. We think, if I say no to my longings and desires... If I let God direct them and then define them, then I'm going to be miserable. Well, look, look what everybody else is doing. I'm going to be miserable. And what God is saying is, no, actually following my way is not the death of anything valuable. It is the birth. It is the new life of a deep and lasting satisfaction with no shame, no guilt, no regrets. See, true satisfaction, to go back to my opening image of the mountains and the reflection, true satisfaction is not found by racing ahead and plunging into the reflection. True satisfaction is found by saying, God, by by your grace, would you let me see the reality? And by your further grace, give me everything I need to pursue the reality, which is a relationship with the mountain, with the sunrise itself. Okay, so this is the biblical pattern. Go after your desires and longings the way everyone else does, and you wind up with nothing except heartache and guilt and shame and pain and a curse. Go after God with all your heart, and you get delight as a byproduct This is what we've been saying all throughout. You want freedom. You have a longing for freedom. You have a longing for peace. You have a longing for justice. You have a longing for a secure identity and satisfaction and contentment. These are all good longings. But if you just chase the longing itself, you get nothing. You chase God. And you get the fulfillment, the satisfaction of the longing as a byproduct of his kindness and his goodness and his love for you. So don't just follow the desires of your heart. Lead them to Jesus let him direct let him define but also let him delight your longings beyond all that you can ask and imagine